0: beams hello wastelanders it is i three dog coming to you from the capital wasteland today on galaxy radio we are going to be reviewing a matt slick latent flowers podcast so matt slick he's back on our minds he's back on our minds he just had a discussion with latent flowers and the discussion was on total depravity i was able to pop into this chat and be one of those little commenters on the side as they're discussing this and let me tell you it was a very painful discussion it was it was hard to listen to uh so much so that i found myself kind of i don't know doing other things during the discussion because it was just that painful so afterwards a lot of people came to me and said you should do a commentary on uh matt slick on in, in in this discussion like you guys are all sadists every single one of you who suggested that I listen to this discussion again they're all sadists they just they they like seeing me suffer is what's going on there so we're going to do that we're going to go over uh, Matt slick and i think it's going to actually be a good opportunity to talk about thinking and thought processes and how people how people uh, formulate their ideas or arguments or we're just interacting with people like Matt Slick in the world. I know they're out there. I know you got your own personal Matt Slicks in your life. During this discussion, I was able to make a lot of uh, mental notes about what was going on and uh, things that I was noticing in Matt Slick and his argumentation. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit in Layton Flowers as well, but more so in Matt Slick. And I was able to put together a little profile of what what I think is problematic and and what Matt Slick says and how he says it and how his thought process is formulated. Number one, he seems to be a stage one thinker. And stage one thinker is a term that I am borrowing from Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is a famous economist. He wrote the book Applied Economics, Thinking Beyond Stage One. And in that book, he recounts talking to his econ professor. And the econ professor asked him how he would solve a particular uh, economic or government problem. Thomas Sowell, a young student at the time, gave his answer. And then the professor said, well, then what will happen after that? And so he answers that, and then the professor says, well, what will happen after that? And uh, what he learned from this experience is you can't just be thinking about the immediate surface level effects. You can't think that your policy is going to have some sort of one-to-one, oh, this is what the policy intends to do. That's what's going to happen. There's not going to be any negative ramifications. Instead, you need to think deeper about the issues. You need to actually understand long-term cause and effect and consequences you can't be a surface level thinker that's what matt slick is he's a surface level thinker we really see this in how he argues he doesn't argue oh your position is wrong because look at the contextual things in this verse to point you know this this here would indicate that uh, your interpretation is off instead what matt slick does is he explains his own belief and then he believes in his heart of heart, that him just explaining his belief is the same thing as arguing that his belief is true, that his belief is the true understanding of these biblical texts. And every time Leighton Flowers tries to pin him down and talk about the context of a single verse, Matt Slick will appeal to his overall system. Your overall system is what's what that debate, my friend? Your evidence is suspect. You're, you're not treating your evidence very well. What Matt Slick will do is he'll go to that verse and you will say, well, This is what it means. And then he'll try to point off to his other proof texts. He'll just throw down a bunch of proof texts. And in this debate, Layton Flowers, to his credit, keeps saying, well, I understand those proof texts. Uh, Those proof texts fit my system. Let's start going into those proof texts one by one. Layton Flowers didn't stick to his guns, though. He let Matt Slick uh, veer off again and just just explain his own uh, theology, explain his own philosophy, which... Which is problematic because uh, anyone could do that it's not like leighton flowers never read matt slick's evidence what what's at critical stake here is the meaning of those individual pieces of evidence so this is a big problem with these types of discussion if both sides are just trying to explain their views uh, you're not going to get anywhere you're not going to convince anyone of anything and everyone who's watching that discussion Is this going to be walk away just convinced of what they were before they came to that discussion? What actually needs to happen is you need to understand uh, the other person's side and then destroy the other person's side from the other person's proof text or from your proof text and and use those proof texts to actually show how your opponent is wrong in their beliefs. You can't just reappeal to your overall system. We already know you have an overall system. We already know that you think all your proof texts work together. Uh, but our our system works too. Our system uh, is is complete and takes account of those same proof texts. You're not introducing new evidence that we haven't considered. The evidence is what is at question. And that's one thing about evidence. Uh, often you get in discussion with people and they'll say, hey, what's your take on this proof text? My favorite proof text for my, my view over here. And you give them an explanation and they say, well, that's not convincing at all. I, I'm not, you, what what are you doing here you're picking out a proof text that you really like for your view and then you think that i'm supposed to prove my system uh using your proof text that's not how this works here your proof text actually can fit into my system i could tell you how it could fit into my system but if you want me to argue my system to you you're gonna to have to allow me to go to my proof text we could talk about my proof text and that's where I'm going to convince you. I'm not going to pr- convince you of my system from your proof text. That's not how this works. A good example of this is uh, philosophy. I've I've never tried to convince anyone to be an open theist through philosophy. But philosophy questions come up and people are like, well, how do open theists take this philosophy? And so you'll talk about uh, time, the nature of time, and, and uh, how... Uh, how the world works. They'll talk about metaphysics, and they'll say, "Oh, you didn't convince me to be an open theist at all." It's like I never set out to. That was never a goal. I, I never said, "Let's convert people to open theism through philosophical discussions, uh, the nature of time, or anything like that." That never was my goal. I never tried to do it. I'm just telling you a system that seems common sense that works with the biblical evidence. That's that's all I'm doing here. That's I'm not who's convincing who. I'm not trying all right moving down on my list there competent thinkers how is someone a competent thinker so not only do they have to know what they believe and yeah i do believe matt slick knows what he believes but you have to know what your critic believes matt slick needs to know what leighton flower believes and why that that's that's crucial why does leighton flowers believe what he believes and you can't just throw oh uh, he has bad motivations. Oh, oh! Uh, Atheists—they only think that thing about the Bible because they're evil people. They're, like ascribing bad motivations to someone as as the explanation as to why they believe something. Generally, that's a terrible idea. It's especially in any d- debate or any discussion we're talking about actual evidence and and uh, intellectual intellectual truths. You never ascribe bad motivations to your opponent. It's, it's nonsensical. Talk about why it is, what evidence they have for those actual beliefs, rather than uh, discounting it due to an ad hominem attack. And maybe if it's okay if you're actually talking about an actual person. Like if we were doing a character profile of Matt Slick to talk about his mental instability and his uh, lapses in logic and reasoning and his uh, megalomania and things like that, when you're doing a character profile, because you're not saying, oh, he's wrong because he's a megalomaniac. That's not what's going on there. You're saying, oh, he's a bad person because he's a bad person, and here's my evidence. It's it's not, you're wrong because you're a bad person. You, you should never make that argument in any context, and don't, don't ever fall into that trap of just ascribing bad motivations to someone. <laughs> Moral government theolo- theologians, uh, I... I had, a, I had a conversation with a moral government theologian. He's like, well, I don't do that. But, but a lot of them do. A lot of them do. If you ever try to argue uh, salvation by faith alone, they'll just say, oh, you just want to justify your sinning. Like, come on, person. Come on. I, just pretend I'm an atheist then for the sake of this conversation... I don't care. Take me out of it. Let's have the conversation without oh, just having to ascribe the worst motivations to your opponents as a way to dismiss what they're actually saying. What's the evidence? Turn to the evidence. Let's talk about the evidence. Right. As Scott Adams says, no mind reading. So don't mind read motivations into your opponents to dismiss their views. So another thing about competent thinkers is that uh, any sort of data set that's out there has multiple interpretations and multiple explanations and i put this in my book Uh, god is open examining the open theism of the biblical authors and i talk about how any set of data there could be multiple conclusions that you could draw from that data you could see that in my Skylar fiction talk when we're talking about flood stories around the world and so i said yeah there's a global flood and we know this because every single culture has a flood legend in their culture and he said oh yeah there could have been some guy just walking around the whole world telling people this story and then they all incorporated into you know their mythology Okay, yes, that that ridiculous scenario could have happened. I don't think it's a probable explanation of the data. It it might be an explanation of the data. And if that's what you want to go with, the more power to you. But what we need to do as rational, competent thinkers is not think in these black and white terms where there's only one solution for this data. There's only one valid interpretation of this data and all else is, needs to be thrown out what actually you need to do is is figure out all the different various interpretations of the data that there can be and then figure out which one has the most probability of being right that's competent thinking and i don't have the graphic that i was looking for but there's a very good graphic that shows six different charts all with the exact same data points but the trend line that people got through trend analysis you could you could make it do whatever you want you could show that it's uh it's curving and it's on a downward slope or that there's exponential growth or that, uh, you know, there's a flat trend line. Any set of data has multiple explanations. That's why in economics, you know, microeconomics is pretty solid stuff. But when you start getting into macroeconomics and this model making and the model prediction, There's so much that goes wrong and there's so much that people, they build their assumptions into models and they make their models fit the data after the fact. They adjust their models to meet the real world expectations rather than using their models to get accurate predictions of the future. Scott Adams also talks about this, how in his work, in his business life, he, he figured out that, you know, you can make the data meet any model. The Bible is a series of data points. Each each verse is its own data point. Each concept is its own data point. And there's going to be multiple interpretations. There's going to be multiple explanations. You see all sorts of branches of Protestantism and Catholicism and other religions who borrow on the Bible and talk about the Bible and use the Bible for their information set. And everyone's different than everyone else. There are so many interpretations of the data as many as there are people, right? That's that's what we see and experience with the data set in the Bible. So it's not like there's going to be one correct thing that you're going to be able to get to from the existing data set that we're we're going to have to pinpoint. And that's going to be the one truth. Instead, we need to think rationally. We need to look at the data and then figure out possibilities for what that data says and then probabilities, which is the most probable and which are less probable. That's how we need to do theology rather than the mad Slick. Oh, here's my theology. And uh, so yours was wrong. You know, mine's the one truth, the one way to see this data. And anytime you cast doubt on one of my evidences, I'll just point to the overarching model and my uh, shotgun proof text. But anytime you look at one single data point, uh, his model goes out the window. He can't prove his model from the individual data pieces. And no one is going to be able to prove any model from the individual data pieces. But all we can hope to do in biblical theology is get a best fit model. One that's the most probable with the data that we have at hand. The last point I'm going to touch on, and this is a point that I don't think Matt understands. I think he understands it to a point. Matt Slick seems to become rational and thoughtful when people are criticizing his views. But anytime he starts talking about other people's views, um, all his standards go out the window. It's a complete 180. He doesn't give any critical thought. His goal seems to be in any conversation to advance his position at all costs without any hint of intellectual humility, without any... Uh, consistent standards, all his standards are out the window. This is why I call him dishonest from time to time. He's a liar, and he'll do and say anything to win a debate, is what this guy will do. He's a dishonest person. But uh, one thing that he fails to do is understand the use and function of language. And a lot of times when I get into debates, my goal is to teach the other person how to read. And this is something people, people don't want to know how to read, because if they know how to read, if they know how language functions and operates, then they lose a lot of access to all their favorite proof texts. Maybe you're looking in Revelation and all these names were written before time began. And uh, that's what they want to do. They they base their entire position on a use of a preposition. And when you're you're talking about uses of prepositions or conjunctions or any word, militantly insisting on a single definition is very dangerous because language just doesn't function like that. Prepositions especially. The prepositions have a wide range of uh, use and function. And often translators do a best guess. And a lot of times their best guess just happen to fit their individual theology that they're trying to press. Just take the Revelation verse where they want all names written in the book of life before the world began. And the word actually is apo, which is sense. The names are being continually added since the beginning of the world. Uh, But they want to translate it as probe before and you know it's not crucial which which actual english translation is given there but uh since works a lot better and "apo" is used a lot more often in the bible to mean a continual process some since some part of part of time and i don't think that's ever used to be like before something happened but they really want the before because that would really fit into what they want that verse to do for their theology. It's, it's one of those things where people are desperate for a proof text. And so they'll, they'll fight alternative explanations at all costs. They'll throw function and use of language out the window. But language, we as human beings, language grows and develops. Things change. I was listening very recently to Weird Al's uh, Word Crimes. It's one of his little parodies. And the premise of this is how people misuse language. And one thing that uh, I thought was interesting, a lot of things he gets wrong in the video because he doesn't understand the use and function of language. One of those things is the use of the word literal. And literal, often in modern culture, when people are communicating, it's actually used as an emphasis to to really drive home, to give give hyperbolic uh, meaning to some statement. Like, this football player, he was a literal, literal wall out there. Or I saw a joke and I say, oh, I'm literally dying over here. What what that is, is it's a figurative use of the word literal. And a lot of people, they blow their gasket. They, they deny that that's a valid... Uh, part of speech that people could actually talk like that it's like they don't understand the use and function of language language morphs language develops things take on new meanings as uh, languages grow and adapt And, and a lot of times these words get turned on their head because uh you know just just use the word gay which was originally meant happy it was it was taken over by the homosexuals because they wanted to Um, associate themselves with happiness, but then it turned into kind of like a slur or insult because now is affiliated with homosexuals and homosexuals was a negative concept and gay was now associated with that. So then the word gay now had this meaning that you could call someone as an insult. It's this development of language because of interacting of different uh, societal elements. And language, it doesn't work with hard and fast rules. Uh, Any any word you find, there's going to be multiple different meanings in different contexts and in different ways. Sarcasm is even an entire idiomatic way of speaking, which negates the entire meaning of words and reverses those meanings. Language does not work with hard and fast rules. You don't turn to any, any set of literature and treat it as if it were an auto-mechanic manual. And people want to do that with the Bible because they're really interested in getting their systematic theology down. And so they'll turn to the Bible and they'll say, every time the word gospel is used, it means the exact same thing. Anytime the word dead is used, it must mean this little thing. And then they'll be inconsistent with other uses of the word and, and the contexts that don't don't fit their theology. They don't want to think about these alternative uses and functions of language because it undermines it undermines their theology that they really want to believe. Uh, We can't be that attached to our theology that we're going to discount normal reading comprehension techniques. We're going to discount the normal use and function of language. We're going to insist militantly on uh, a single definition for every single word and a single use of a preposition rather than varied use in varied contexts with varied meanings and, and loose use. We can't do that. We can't be that guy. Matt Slick is that guy. And he'll argue militantly for his views against the evidence. But I think it's about time that we start this uh, whole little shindig and have Matt Slick tell us about his own beliefs. But watch for those things. Watch for Matt Slick confusing, explaining his belief with uh, proving that his belief is true. All right.
1: Well, I appreciate uh, what you had to say. And, um, (laughs)
0: <laughs> did he though did he internalize it did did he uh incorporate it one thing matt slick likes to do is uh, anytime you refute anything he says he doesn't internalize your argument and then you'll hear his argument in the very next uh time he debates or talks and it's, it's like it's like a cognitive dissonance thing where where anything that uh, sheds any sort of uh uh criticism on his belief anything he can't handle he just mentally rejects and throws it out and then it resurfaces
1: uh went over a lot of verses very quickly and it's difficult to address uh, each verse at 80 miles an hour yes it is um and then you know i can quote from memory you know 15 verses to support something really quickly all in 30 seconds it's not gonna really doesn't accomplish anything
0: so look at this he's he's Throwing shade on this uh, verse shotgunning, which which is a good thing to do, but then he himself dives into it. Another thing that we need to note about his uh, megalomania, he's like, I could recite all these verses. By memory, he, he he always does these uh, self-congratulatory little phrases that he he sparses his talks with. I could teach you about that. Oh, will we'll have a Bible lesson. I'll I'll do that. And he 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 makes himself out to be a bigger person. It's all part of his little strategy. At, I, th- I think there's just part megalomania. He's just so full of himself. It, he This is how he talks and he thinks and he functions. He's so superior to everyone else that if someone like Arthur Hagelin doesn't treat him with the utmost respect, oh, then he has a mental breakdown because he's better than everyone else. And the thing is, I don't think this guy uh, is very smart. He's, he's what uh, what is uh, Michael Malice will, would call a midwit, a Vox Day, I think coined the term. And what that term means is a midwit is someone who's relatively smart. And a lot of people they interact with are not very smart, not very high IQ individuals. And so they get this inflated sense of their own intelligence because they haven't interacted with people that are more intelligent than them. And so they're midwits. They they, they don't know how dumb they are, and they think they're they're smarter than they are. And I think that's Matt Slick to a T. Uh,
1: We need to examine things in context, one at a time. And, uh, you know, you brought up things, and I could respond. Maybe we'll have a conversation over a few of the verses. I've got some very very basic questions I want to ask later on. But, you know, you opened up with Revelation 22, 17.
0: So they're going to flip to a verse, let's see if they examine the context either one of the two either one do they say oh this is what's happening in this verse and this is why this verse uh probably means what i'm saying this verse means rather than what you're saying the verse means looking for contextual clues or let's watch matt slick does he appeal to Oh, here's all my other proof texts over here. Let's appeal to my system rather than appealing to context.
1: My spirit and the bride say, come, let the... In fact, I don't even know what my time frame is. It's uh, 23, so 15, 38. Okay. Uh, Let him uh, who hears come and uh, let who's thirsty, you know, drink and let the one who wishes take water of life. And you said, see, it implies, uh, well, you haven't said it, but libertarian free will.
0: Yeah, so if someone was writing this and they were a fatalist, How would they write those statements? What would it look like? And what would we expect? Uh, One thing we need to do is be scientific about this. Make some hypotheses. If the biblical authors believed XYZ, they would write like XYZ. It's not very hard. And so if someone believes then libertarian free will, which is like every single human's default uh, position, how would they write? They would write about how people can have choices. They would ha- they wouldn't fight with these soteriological claims or these a uh, uh, total depravity claims or this uh, inability claims. Uh, it wouldn't be in their mind because it's it's a non-issue. It's it's something that they're not even considered. So they're just going to talk about how people respond normally. But if someone was a fatalist, someone believes. Every thing, single thing is predestined. Every single person is chosen from before time began. Uh, they would write in a completely different way. They would talk about, oh, this, this specific special group of people chose from time eternal. That's why, back to that Revelation verse, uh, people are very, very keen on having this verse mean that there's an eternal list of names that's been forever decided. Because that's the only thing they got. That's the only thing they got. And, the they got. and uh, just a very cursory look at that verse destroys the whole thing it's not about names being written before time began at all but it's about names being written and it's about names not being written actually since the beginning of the world so it undermines their entire position they have no verses and it uh, really causes confusion and anger when you point these things out to them
1: but the verse does not say how they were able to arrive at that condition of being able to desire or wish it and plus the context is of those who are already in heaven
0: so what you do there is if you would look at the context who's talking to whom and why what, what point are they trying to make what how would they have written that verse if they believed in total divine determination and how would have they have written that verse if they believed in free will and then what does the verse say and which one does it more accurately represent that's that's how you would do probably something a little bit more competent for going over these verses but matt slick he doesn't do that you know
1: you can people do this they will throw verses out very quickly say see it means that they can believe like john three sixteen, which he didn't bring up but john three sixteen, god of the world whoever believes well that means everybody can believe no not necessarily you know and it doesn't say how they come to believe either if god grants that they believe because
0: yeah, so I, I make fun of this in one of my comics that I draw, the John 3.16. Who's Jesus talking to? And in what context? At what point is he making? Is he making the point that uh, James White says he's making that he's like, oh, God just wants all different types of people maybe to uh, become saved. Maybe like like one dude who's rich and then like one dude who's poor, but not all poor people and not all rich people. Does that work in context? Does does that give meaning to the story of what's being communicated.
1: He does. Philippians 129, and he works belief in them. John six twenty eight twenty nine, 29. He grants repentance, 2 Timothy 225. See, I can whip those out too quickly. I mean, not too quickly, but quickly also.
0: He's got his system. He's appealing to his system. What he's doing there is he's he's trying to mentally trump uh, Flowers. He's trying to tell his followers, I got my proof text, so don't pay attention to anything Flowers has said because here's my system. Is appealing to a system rather than dealing with what Leighton Flowers said.
1: And um, we might want to, you know, pause and look at one or two and, and, uh, yeah, and see how they it, work. Yeah, let's You know, uh, Leighton, you went to uh, John six forty four. 44. Um, when you come to me, you can't come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. You know, the contention of uh, those of us in the Reformed camp is that those who are born in sin are enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 14 through 20 talks about this. They're dead in their sins, Ephesians two one.
0: Yeah, what do these things mean? And language, of course, they hijack language, these Calvinists. So they, they take normal words and they ascribe ridiculous, nonsensical meanings that they don't derive from the the context and then they say, see, our theology is correct. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll use the word predestination or predestined or pro in the Greek. And then I'll take secular Greek writers of the age. And then I'll give the paragraph with the word in it. And I'll give the paragraph to the Calvinist. And I'll say, which word is predestined? And they won't know. They're, they're looking at the English. They're looking at the, a, a whole paragraph with one of the verbs being predestined. They won't know what word it is because it doesn't fit their preconceived notion of what this word has to mean. This, this, is, this is the problem with Calvinist theology is, is it's read into the Bible. You have to start with your theology and you force it into the Bible rather than getting it from the Bible. They force meanings onto words, uh, words that aren't in the wider cultural context defined as such. Jack Moore has a book, Deleting Elect from the Bible, in which he goes through and he systematically talks about how that word is used. It's used like the word choice, like you, you get choice vines. You take the choice grapes from your vineyard to make your best wine. And that's how it's actually used. It's not used as, oh, this is, I'm picking this one individual from time, eternity. This is the chosen one. This is the enlightened one that I've enlightened it's nothing like that. It's about choosing the best out of out of a group. And Jesus' parable of the banquet beautifully illustrates this concept of election. Whereas uh, first the message goes out to basically the religious leaders, those in charge of Israel. It's rejected by those people. And so then the scope is broadened. Then it starts going out into the highways and the byways. And anyone who wants to come responds. And then the people who come and respond if they don't respond in the right way uh those those ones are rejected and what's left is the elect the choice there was a selection process by which people self-selected to be the elect and those those are the choice and this is how jesus explains what the elect are but calvinists they don't like to do this type of uh, word study to see how words are used in in what context instead they'll militantly insist they'll really insist for the debate that the words mean what the Calvinists say those words mean.
1: They're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. And again, I'm not trying to whip out 8,000 verses. Um, Yes, you are. It's just, you know, we can discuss things. I'm trying to be polite and be slow for everybody. But, um, you know, so we have these reasons why we say these things, and they're worth examining those those, uh, scriptures. And if someone just has the ability to believe uh, on their own by hearing the gospel, hearing something. It's just something in them that enables them, which is a question you need to tackle. Uh, okay. Uh,
0: well, look at this, these categories of thought. You just, just put aside for one minute, uh, the substance. What's look at these categories. Okay. Someone needs to be hearing something that enables a response. Like, like who talks like this, who thinks like this, who functions like this, these categories being injected into Christian thought um, they're pagan. They're, they're from this systematic theology. They're from this uh, this system that's extra biblical. They don't talk like this in the Bible. They'll, they'll claim Paul talked like this, but no, Paul's not talking like that. You got to prove that. Paul was talking like a normal person would down by the street where, you know, language has loose and flexible meaning. And Paul's often trying to make concerted points in context. And if you ignore the context and just want to pull verses out of context and then ascribe those meanings to specific words militantly, yeah, you might come up with this theology. You might. But these concerns are not biblical concerns. And the way you know this and the way you know it's true is because if it's only found in Paul, if it's only found in the New Testament, uh, that's not biblical theology. Either it's in the whole Bible, and it's systematic throughout the whole Bible, or else you're just pulling things out of thin air. You're making it up. Yeah, just go through the whole Bible. Where does it talk about, oh, someone needs to be regenerated and uh, get an effectual calling? All these categories, all those categories are being imposed on the Bible. They're just categorically, they're a wrong way of thinking and a wrong way of treating the Bible. And here's the funny thing. These are the categories, these are the thought processes that Calvinists really love. This is their daily bread and butter, these nonsense ideas, these nonsense ways of thinking.
1: So it says, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If it's up to people's free will, then why was it Jesus say, you can't come to me unless the Father draws him? If it's the natural ability of a person to be able to come to God on his own free will, even within his sinfulness, then why does Jesus say you cannot? No one can do this unless the Father draws him.
0: Okay, a couple notes. First of all, Jesus spoke often in confusing uh, ways in order to confuse his audience on purpose. He spoke in metaphors, and in, in riddles, and he wasn't straightforward. So taking anything, uh, any one of Jesus' speeches, And then ascribing hard and fast metaphysics to it that's really dangerous really dangerous and second of all just the mere fact that uh matt slick here turned straight to metaphysics oh jesus is giving us uh, a very detailed uh, account of metaphysically how our bodies work and function there's this calling and there's this drawing rather than normal everyday speech assuming metaphysics into a text is also a category mistake. It's because these people categorically care about metaphysics. So they want to read metaphysics into everything. Jesus is insulting these people. He's talking to people that he, that don't like him and, and who think they're godly. And he's saying, you guys aren't God's people. He's calling them out. He's, he's making them mad. And that's what he did. He was a provocateur. He provoked, he provoked his audience for time and time again. And the thing Arthur Hagelin pointed out, Arthur Hagelin, uh, he's he, there's there's an exception for Judas, but Judas was one of the called. Judas was one of the people who fell away. And in John 6 that they're quoting here, no one's supposed to fall away. But there is an exception. But uh, that doesn't play nice with Matt Slick's theology, his hard and fast rules of metaphysics that he wants to lay down by this verse. Jesus is now telling us metaphysics, hard and fast rules in Matt Slick's mind. That's what he cares about. That, that's, that's the categories of thought that are very important to him. I see zero evidence that Jesus is given anywhere in any of his sermons hard and fast ideas of metaphysics. He doesn't talk metaphysics.
1: And what you did, Leighton, you went straight to John 12, 32. If I lift it up on the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. The all men has to do with all people groups because Jesus <laughs> said in Matthew fifteen twenty four, he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wasn't sent to the whole world.
0: Look at that. This This proof text trumping is is also pretty asinine you don't look at one verse in one chapter and say oh but look at this verse over here in a different context in a different chapter are are they parallel passages Uh, did you pull up a biblical harmony and they were mirrored to each other and they're talking about the same event or are you trying to say this proof text over here in a different context about a different subject overrides or interprets this proof text over here about this subject The invalid biblical theology. You have to look at the immediate context of your verse to derive meaning, Matt Slick. He doesn't want to do this. He wants to continually, continually appeal to his overriding systematic theology. That's what he cares about. That's the only place he has any evidence for anything evidence is loose so you got the little quote marks in the air over his evidence he doesn't actually have evidence and anytime you turn to any piece of evidence for his views it evaporates and so he has to continually shift the goal he'll shift to new proof texts. if you shoot down one he'll shotgun a bunch of others as if you didn't shoot down his first piece of evidence but what this tells you and what Layton Flowers should do is point out time and time again that the very first proof text that they turn to anytime they turn to one of his proof texts it dissolves that paints every single other verse that he's using as suspect it's suspect it doesn't mean what he's claiming it means in context there's alternative and often better often more often better ways to take those same verses that's not to say that Metzlick has zero evidence and there's zero verses that uh, you know could mean his theology but there's alternative explanations for all of those verses and which one makes the most sense in context that's not what's going on in this discussion i don't see it too much from the Layton flower side of this discussion either which which is kind of sad but uh, laden flowers is a systemizer as well you got two systematizers and that's why when you're coming away from this debate all the calvinists went in thinking oh Matt Slick did awesome. He wiped the floor. know, there's a couple comments saying to the contrary, saying, I'm a Calvinist, but I think Layton Flowers did better here. Uh, but for the most part, everyone who came in with their beliefs walked away with their same beliefs because you had two different people just explaining their views rather than actually going in detail of the context of any single, any single statement, any single verse, any single passage. This is why the Haglund Slick debate is what I keep pointing to over and over because Haglund put him onto a verse, kept him on that verse, and they dealt with that verse in that verse's context, in the context of John. Haglund kept him there. And then Matt Slick falls apart. Matt Slick loses it. He has like that mental breakdown. Oh, you're not treating me nice. You know, that's what Matt Slick does.
1: was only sent to Israel, and then Israel rejected him, and then covenantally uh, the covenant was broken, and we the Gentiles are grafted in, and then that's why that uh, we Gentiles can be saved. But uh, he says, No one can come to me unless the father sent him draws. That that's a limitation. He says you can't do it unless the father draws you.
0: You notice that. So um Maslik often, instead of just talking about his counter evidence, uh, exactly, he'll 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 point to it, but then he'll go on tangentially and talk about other things. What he's trying to do there is he's trying to signal to the audience oh, how smart he is, how much information he has. And, and he, he could give a big sermon on all these other things, even though it's irrelevant to the debate. It's just virtue signaling. It's, it's just uh, self-glorification is what's going on in those instances.
1: And he goes on in John 6, 65. He says, uh, that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. Nobody can.
0: Well, this is important. Nobody can come to Jesus. Because he's talking metaphysics. Jesus is talking about like a Gnostic enlightenment. That's a metaphysical on-off switch that has to be flipped. I don't think so, Matt Slick. Unless the
1: Father granted to him. If it's up to people's free will, once they've heard the gospel, heard a message, whatever it might be, uh, then they should just be able to come to God on their own. But it would not be necessary for Jesus to say that no one can come to him unless it's granted to him from the Father. Now, this is the kind of verses that we reform people will look at and say oh, we believe that no one can come to christ unless it's granted to them by the father which means that your free will doesn't allow you to come to christ because no one can do it unless the father grants it to you
0: yeah that's what jesus was doing in context he was talking about free will and predestination i don't think so matt slick i don't think so
1: now uh, i can go to first corinthians twelve three.
0: And here's the thing. This is the exact passage that him and Arthur Hagland actually talked about in context. Matt Slick didn't internalize a single thing about that passage, did he?
1: Uh, we're, you know, Paul says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is another restriction on the, the nature of the uninformed, the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit is indwe- indwells the believers. We know that. Well, if they don't have the spirit, they're not going to say Jesus is Lord. They can't do it. it says no one can say Jesus is Lord. Now we know they can. Uh, uh,
0: metaphysics. Everything's metaphysics in his mind. If the Bible says something, automatically it's metaphysics. Unless it doesn't like meet his system. Maybe dead is used in a different context. And he doesn't want to make dead mean his spiritual deadness that he really cares about. That he wants everyone to be like skeletons and unable to move. Um, you know, a complete double standard, but... Anytime he can, he goes to metaphysics. The Bible is a metaphysical textbook. It's absolutely not. The Bible doesn't talk about metaphysics. The Bible doesn't talk about systematic theology. The Bible is a historical document. So who was the book of John written to? What was it trying to do? Who is it trying to convince of what? Add, add, add. Is it trying to convince people that uh, people have been eternally selected from all eternity and uh, no one has any options and uh, either you're elect or you're not and if you're not, you're damned to hell, there's nothing you can do about? That's not the context of anything in the Bible. The entire Bible is a book of advocacy to convince people of things, which is irrelevant in a world without free will. It's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. This whole debate, the whole debate's nonsense. He doesn't, uh, (laughs) Matt Slick doesn't believe Leighton Flowers has free will, but he'll engage in a debate about free will. It's nonsense. It's a nonsense debate. He's a nonsense man.
1: Utter the syllables. But we know what this means is the confession of it. They can't do that unless the Holy Spirit is uh, there. Now, are we going to say upon them or within them? And that's another discussion. Uh, you know, I could go to. There's lots of verses I could go to. Um, here's one, uh, John eight forty three through forty four. Uh, Jesus says. To,
0: there's lots of verses I could go to. Okay, what happened to the going through verses one by one, talking about context and and having a discussion about those verses? We're doing the shotgun proof texting again. We'll give Matt Slick a few more minutes, and then we'll we'll cut off for today.
1: To the Pharisees, you cannot hear my word because you're of your father the devil. Now, there's a restriction. And that
0: they- Jesus is insulting up. Jesus is insulting. Jesus walked around insulting people. That's what he did. If you came to him and you're disingenuous, he just called you names until you left. I, that's what Jesus does. Oh, but if you rule that out, if Jesus is a, just a metaphysical teaching, emotionless Gandhi figure who just talks metaphysics all day and and doesn't have a personality, doesn't have emotions, doesn't communicate with people and, in normal, conventional speech, doesn't have uh, any sarcasm in him, doesn't have any uh, vindictiveness sometimes. God has a lot of vindictiveness in the Bible so that Jesus would just be this emotionalist blob. I think Jesus is mirroring who these people think God is in their mind. So God is immutable and impassable. And so Jesus must be as well. And they strip Jesus of any character and personality. That's but that's not what's going on in these passages. Jesus is straight up insulting people until they leave them. Oftentimes in the Bible. That's what Jesus does. So this is it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous to just read everything under the lens of metaphysics rather than Allowing more natural readings of the text to prevail.
1: They cannot do this because they are the father of the devil. This means they're unregenerate. They're haters of
0: God. (laughs) This means my philosophy. Prove it. Prove it. Go to the context and prove that's what it means. You don't do that. You read a verse and you tell us your explanation of that verse. And then you assume that you proved your views are true. This is improper, invalid, Matt Slake bad matt slick go to timeout go to timeout all right we're gonna cut us off there because uh, it's getting pretty late for me here and uh, i don't know matt slick you just get good talk 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 it's all he's gonna do but uh leave me hate mail in the comments below or uh start a thread on the god is open facebook page thank you for listening
1: Cause i got spurs that jingle jangle jingle. jingle. As I go riding merrily along